This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another serving of Business Soup Talk Radio. If it's in business, it's business soup. I'm your host, John Dibbavoise. When it comes to entrepreneurship, the only limitation you have is your imagination. Our guest today is an entrepreneur, and she had a vision from long ago. Susie Fleetstra is joining us. She is the founder of a fashion company. It's called Hobby Horse. As an entrepreneur, we identify them all the time. Find a niche, find a passion, and then see how you can improve it. Well, Susie had a passion, and she found her niche, and she built it into a huge enterprise. Listen to her story of how she built a business from passion and delivered it and sold it. Living the dream, entrepreneurship, Susie Fleetstra from Hobby Horse, right here on Business Soup. Susie, welcome to this serving of Business Soup. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. You and I go back decades as competitors and friends. We've been in the horse industry all our lives. And that's where I recognized your riding style when I first saw you riding. And we had a connection. We had mutual trainers at different times. That was the Mac and Maggie McHugh's. And then you also were a fashion statement. More so, you created a fashion line. And that's what I wanted to bring you on about your entrepreneurship. You created what became Hobby Horse Clothing. When did the idea of being a stitch and sewer come to mind and where did you start? When I was about eight years old, I set some goals for myself. And Wait a minute. At eight years of age, when everybody else is pushing a little big wheel around or pedaling a big wheel, you're sitting, I'm going to have some goals for me at eight years of age. Well, yeah, I just, it happened. <laughs> Those goals included, I wanted to have a horse-related business because I was, I had the horse crazy gene and I wanted to own my own building and I wanted to have a mail order business. I wanted there to be a mail order element. But I knew that I was not, even when I was a little kid, I was not talented enough or maybe driven enough to actually make the business about training horses. And even at that age, I was interested in the equipment used for horses. And I had, you know, a massive collection of all the catalogs that, of course, we were all mail order in the day. Oh, yeah. A massive collection of the catalogs and would sometimes talk my mother into giving me small amount of money to buy some little trinket, which I would practically wait by the mailbox to get. So I was a, I was kind of a mail order junkie at age eight and knew I wanted to have some sort of horse related business that was mail order and own my own building. And sometime later, all those things came true. And that was the, the impetus for Hobby Horse Clothing Company, which I started when I was in junior high school and incorporated in 1987. And then I ran it for 39 years until I sold the business to a former customer in 2017. Wow. So you started off at a very young age and then you started in school, what became Hobby Horse, a clothing line. What was the direction you were going? There were, anybody could just walk into a tax store, as I did, and buy a shirt off the rack or whatever it is we needed. We could go into the local tax store. What made you different? 
I looked at the existing business over time. And as a horse show competitor myself, being involved in a sport or a hobby or a business situation and seeing a need is the mother of all invention, I sort of think. And so as a, as a horse show competitor myself, I realized that there were, there were two options for the equipment that we needed. And when I'm talking about the show clothing, it's the apparel that you wear when you're being judged in the horse show, right. not necessarily the practice clothing. And it's a separate it's sort of a separate genre than the saddlery, than what we call tack, the bits and bridles and things that go on the horse. So we're talking about rider apparel for competing Western style. Barn attire, it makes us look more like we're homeless than horse owners when we're out in the barn. But when we go in the ring, we are dressed to the nines and you took it step higher with hobby horse. I like to think we kind of dressed people to the tens, but at the at the time, kind of what existed, the options were to go to a Western wear store and buy something off the rack or to have things custom made by the equivalent of almost having a wedding dress or a prom dress or something made. So those were actually two extremes. And the things that came from the Western wear store were, were certainly adequate, but they weren't unique or original and they weren't real fitted for women. So it was kind of generic clothing. And then when you had the custom made things done, they were gorgeous and, and really beautiful workmanship, but they were very expensive and frankly, beyond the budget and beyond the needs of a lot of people. So I looked at those two extremes and I thought, hmm, okay, there must be some way to do something in between. And that's how my concept of ready to win versus ready to wear, ready to win show apparel was born. And I, I basically looked around at the real world, not the just the horse world. And I saw that there were very few naked people walking around. And I figured, <laughs> well, if that was my clue. I figured if it was possible to mass produce clothing for the real world, then why couldn't I do something sort of like that to bridge that gap between off the rack and custom for this niche that I was involved in, which is Western show apparel. And that's how Hobby Horse was born. In my audience's knowledge of how my businesses came about, I've always told them, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. All you need to do is come up with a spoke that puts it in the wheel and make it turn faster, smoother, easier. Yes. And what you did, what you took on the fashion industry. You were in an industry, and I talk about this all the time. Pick whatever it is you're in and figure out how you can make it work better without reinventing yes. the wheel. And in my case, I used technology, which I knew nothing of. I knew where it could be. You were already in an industry, both one that we both shared, and that's the horse industry and being com very competitive. And you saw the opportunity to put another spoke in that wheel, so to say, and come up with a fashion line that was, as you called it, and I love the tag of the branding, ready to win. Yes, that's exactly what I did. So you must have used yourself as the the model. And did you make your own clothes and then that built and then you built the business off of that? Yes, it started from my own need. And I think that's really the seed for so many businesses and so many innovations is just basically problem solving. And you're usually pretty close to the problem to realize it is a problem and needs solving. So there I was in the horse business, needing um, the apparel to, to be competitive and not having the budget to have it custom made. And it was a logical step for me because my mother was a sewing teacher. So oh. we had fabric draped all over the place and there were sewing machines galore and Sometime during when kind of the early days, shortly before I started Hobby Horse, 
My mom also started a costume rental business, which she started in her house. And it's now one of the biggest costume rental places in California. So the idea of costuming and clothing and sewing and creating was obviously close at hand, like in the next room. So it was a very easy step to say, okay, we need these things. They don't exist. Let's create them. And that's what we did. When you mentioned costume, I've had guys that were outside the horse world and they would see me dressed as the cowboy that I am. And they asked me, why the costume? And I looked at them and I said, being a cowboy is not a costume. (laughs) So you went from the background, the family background of the stitch and sew, the costumes. It was a natural for you to go into creating your own line. What did the first outfit that you made that evolved into the Hobby Horse brand, what did it look like? Oh, it was it was beautiful to me at the time. And I wouldn't be surprised to find out there's still some kid wearing it around somewhere. Uh, <laughs> and it would not be beautiful to my eye now. But And I actually got a more specific start than what I mentioned, which is the very first items I started making myself were shaps. So out west, we say shaps. In the east, people might say chaps. Chaps, yeah. The, the leather leggings that cowboys wear that are protective in, in origin, and theoretically they say to protect you from the chaparral, but we don't know the origin exactly. Anyways, I was making chaps, and I was making horrible chaps. They were really <laughs> tricky to make. They, they were not pretty. It's a flat piece of leather that has to fit a very curvy part of a person's body. And there was a lady in our area who was a superb chap maker, and finally somebody said, just call her. She's really nice. She'll help you. And I called her and she said, come over and I'll show you how to make shaps. And that, I don't know, one minute conversation changed the rest of my life. And she did teach me to make shaps. And we are still really good friends to this day. In fact, we made a pair of shaps for me showing at a new event um, last year and collaborated together, which was fun. She's now 75 years old and is as good as she ever was at this real niche thing. So my entrance into this specialty started with shops, and right. then there was the big demand for all the other apparel that goes with it, ultimately even including hats. And back to your comment about is it a costume? It's not a costume, and yet in a way it almost is in terms of Western wear is the native dress of recent North Americans. We'll leave out Native Americans on that because they have their own style of dress. But in terms of the westward movement and all of the things that I think are very strongly identified with the United States, the cowboy is our icon, the Western feel, the wide open spaces. And as we would associate certain style of apparel with other cultures, let's say Lederhosen with Germany as, as an example. Really, our historical style of dress, for the most part in the United States, is Western wear, is working clothing, Western wear, large hats, protective gear. So it's both a historical and a romantic place to be in terms of the style and reinventing the style and refreshing the style. And again, solving a problem and taking something old and making it new again. And it was a really, really fun business because of that. Well, you made quite the statement. The women that were in the ring stood out. You couldn't miss them. Even in the dark, they would stand (laughs) out. And here we are trotting down the rail or jogging down the rail, and we just looked like we just went in, and which we did. We went into Target and got a shirt. And that was about the extent of our investment in our look. And you capitalized in the women's wear, which went into hats. And then everybody started getting matching blankets, saddle blankets that went with it, along with the shaps. And it was quite the presentation to this day. It is spectacular, 
the way that women will turn out for the events in all, not dis- so much disciplines, but in the Western disciplines in all breeds. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's fun. And it's also strategic because in these events that we're talking about, you are judged on how you look. Presentation. Yeah, exactly. And and these days we're supposed to not judge anybody on anything. But frankly, we go into the show ring and we pay somebody to judge us. We pay somebody to be judgmental. And so the, <laughs> the, the goal in this is to look distinctive and to create sort of a picture story and a color story with your horse that is attractive and distinctive from the others. In some of the events that we're in, there might be, you know, a dozen or more horses, let's just say mostly brown horses going around in an arena at the same time. And if you use color and line and design well, you create a very distinctive and attractive color story with your horse. And that immediately gives you an advantage in this judged event. That's right. Certainly it benefits the competitor to present an attractive and original and distinctive presentation in the show ring. And that's part of what the business was about. And your business model can be applied to any business or any fashion. I've got relatives that are in the motocross section, and they have their own line of clothing. doesn't look anything like yours, but they have their own line of clothing. It could be anything. So I encourage everyone that listens to this show is entrepreneurship. Look at what you're doing today. And just like Susie, capitalize on what you see and where can you make a small change. It's only like a couple degrees where you can change something and make money off of it. So in every every business, there's the idea, the plan, the people, the execution, and the solution. Most of us go in there into business with an idea, and then we build the plan, and then we figure out, you know what, we might need some other people. Did you find that your business grew and you suddenly had to start hiring people to do other aspects that you had done all yourself? Absolutely, and the most critical choice that I made which was just such a blessing in that was I mentioned that my mother was a sewing teacher and, you know, I, I met up with the shop maker lady and I was fine at making the shops, but I really wasn't that good of a seamstress or a tailor. And my mom being a sewing teacher at the time had a gentleman in one of her classes who was a recent immigrant to the United States and was a master tailor. And he was taking her tailoring classes just to learn English because he certainly did the tailoring. <laughs> and, uh, and he and I got into business together and he knew nothing about this specialty, but he knew how to make clothes. And together he and I developed patterns and fit and style. And initially we did custom business for several years together, one of a kind custom measurements. And then from that point, the ready to win line evolved. But I started with this one key gentleman who knew the technical side of the business far better than I could ever learn in my lifetime. And I was so fortunate to be able to work with him to learn the basics and establish good base garments, good base fit, good base style. So I would advise anybody in a business is hook yourself up with a master if you can, who knows not the breadth of the business, but knows the depth of the specialties that you're going to have to absorb. I couldn't say it any better. And I know for a fact in my own experiences that if I didn't do it right, there was always a government agency that would come along and remind me of how I did it wrong. This is true. Did you ever encounter any governmental agency that walked through the door and said, we are here to check out your business, Susie? What do you got? Yes. 
over a period of time, as the business evolved and we started making bigger quantities of things, and keep in mind, our, our biggest cuts that we would make were still considered sample size cuts in the garment industry at large. So we were a very small manufacturer. I was fortunate to end up being a big fish in a small pond in the niche I was in, but overall in the garment business, I was a tiny fish in a big pond. And I live in the Los Angeles area, which has far more garment manufacturing than anywhere else in the U.S. It's a big business. It's a huge component of California's economy. And it historically been a business that has had a lot of abuses, immigrant labor and... Um, well, sure, sweatshops and such. So were you checked out for operating a sweatshop? There's a lot of rules and regulations, which we did our very best to follow because who wants the hassle? And at one point, we had a small couple hundred garments in one factory that was seized by, this was many, 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 many years ago. We had a small number of sample garments in a factory that was shut down for labor violations. So we were a minnow caught up in that net with a whole bunch of sharks. Okay, so your name was on their files, and so they they just followed the path of uh, water and led them to you. Yes. They cast a wide net and we were in it. And I learned a lot, worked my way through it. Um, we were actually in compliance for what we'd done. Um, the, the, the way the garment business works basically is you use contractors because most uh, apparel manufacturers don't manufacture year round. I mean, if they're real big, they have their stuff in house, but generally use outside contractors. You work by a series of contracts and, you know, all parties need to adhere to it. And it's a complicated business with a lot of money going through it. And it often has some shady characters. So, you know, I like to think I was absolutely unshady, but sometimes there's so many rules and regulations, it's hard to be in compliance. So that was my many, many years ago, one one small issue with that. And we resolved it and I learned a lot. And um, I think that the people that claimed they were harmed came out whole, but it was startling to be caught up in multi, multi, multi-million dollar businesses when I was a little pipsqueak business. So it can happen to anybody. And you just have to, you know, do your best to educate yourself and try and stay on top of it. We're talking with Susie Fleetstra from the business Hobby Horse, one that I experienced for many years as a competitor, not only her as a competitor, but the clothing line that she created, Hobby Horse. And it's an example of entrepreneurship. She recognized an opportunity. She filled a need. She had an idea at a very young, very young age. And then she built upon that a plan and then discovered that she needed the people. You got a master an absolute master technician that didn't understand the business but understood the technical aspect of making clothing. Now that you had this clothing, how did you go about getting it to the market? As my audience knows, distribution is the most important part of any business because without it, you got nothing. So what did you do? It was an interesting time to be in business, mostly in the 1990s to about 2010, 2015, um, because that bridged the Internet. So what we did initially was have a good mail order catalog, and I sold both direct to consumers and via uh, dealers, which would be Western wear stores, let's say, or stores that cater to the equestrian marketplace. So we'd go to wholesale trade shows and sell to those stores who would then sell on to consumers, and we would also sell direct via our catalog and then eventually via our website. We had a website in 1994. We were very early adapters of the <laughs> internet. And um, I can still remember the first time I placed an ad in a wholesale trade magazine with my web address in it. The editor called and said, there is a typo in your ad. And I said, oh. <laughs> said, what is this? It says, it's just gobbledygook. It says www.hobbyhorse.com. 
that is the web address. That's right. So we were very early, very early adapters of that. But you know, you in a small business, you need to hustle and you need to you need to cover the board in how you market and advertise. I did make a good decision early on this, which it could have been a bad decision, but ended up good. Which was, I think you can either push things through a system or pull things through a system. And in our traditional Western business, the horse stores, it was usually a push through the system where you would go to the wholesalers only and pick up your product and put it on their shelf and market it for you. I decided with my specialty niche, I wanted to try and pull through the system. And to do that, I did reach out to consumers early and created catalogs that featured real people not fancy models, but real people who we'd tell their little story on the catalog pages and they weren't all size, you know, zero and all this. And so that became a bit of a bit of a wish book for people. We widely distributed those catalogs, hundreds of thousands at one point. And and then that sort of translated later onto the internet. But we created a consumer demand who would then the consumers would have an awareness of our product. Then they would go into the stores and say, We want hobby horse and then the stores would see me at a trade show and say, my customers say that they want hobby horse, so sell me some hobby horse. So that's a kind of a classic example of a pull through the system. And in my case, it worked really well because it was such a niche product. So I would advise people think about with your marketing, are you going to push it through the system? Or are you going to pull it through the system or some combo? But that's an important thing to think about. Your description of the push and pull reminds me of the interview I did with Rob Angel, my friend who created the world's most successful board game, Pictionary. Ah. And he was talking about how he got people same way. He was forcing the public who didn't know anything about his game to experience the game. And then the demand that was created by the consumer fell back into the distributors and the distributors, the stores were then calling him, hey, we need your game. Exactly. Same type of model. We were, yes. And an interesting thing for me and my business is because we bridged the catalog to internet time frame. So the, the internet is the ultimate pull through and it's really radically changed all this. Yes. A product can go viral in a TikTok video and suddenly everyone has to have it. So that whole distribution model that has kind of been through the ages has been flipped on its head in the last 20 years. And I think a lot of companies, especially larger companies, have been sort of slow to understand. I mean, they all get it now because they have gotten slaughtered if they haven't figured this out. But a lot of companies were quite slow and really stumbled in understanding the value of that pull through marketing. And now it used to all be pushed through, and now it's almost all pull through. But there's still a place for good distribution and relationships with distributors, depending on your product. It, you know, the, the business world shifts and, and morphs, but the components are the same, which is what are you going to do with this basic issue of supply and demand? How are you going to get from supply to demand and, and demand to the supply? And it's like a snake eating its tail. It goes around and goes around and goes around. And the trappings look different and the modalities look different, but the challenge remains. Everybody should have their own home-based business. And like Susie was just describing, it came from a passion that she had wanting to make a statement in an industry that she was already involved in. In fact, two industries. One 
which was family related in this, what I call the stitch and sew. And the other was horses, a passion that we both had. I converted my passion into a business where I learned how to use the tax code. And everybody knows you don't have to know the tax code. You just have to know how to use it. We capitalize that all the time on converting ordinary expenses to deductions. I use my horse business. You can create your own. And we'll be featuring some of our top picks here in the coming months as to opportunities for you to get into business. Susie Fleetstra, as she goes by, is Susie. I've known her for many years from the horse business. She created her own business, Hobby Horse Clothing Line. And then there came a point, like so many business owners, where you had to let the child that you grazed go. It's like raising a child. Hobby Horse went up for sale. What was that decision like? And what made you think it's time to let it go? Well, I think like most um, entrepreneurs, or I actually call myself an entrepreneur because I've always been involved with horses. But anyways, like like most small business owners or entrepreneurs, I uh, often fantasized about selling my business and just stepping away and getting a real job, which of course I still <laughs> never had a real job. But uh, I, you know, I think that's a fantasy for a lot of business owners. And if you start a small business, it becomes very big, very quick. Then there's lots of offers. But if you're sort of a craftsperson, sort of an artisan, which I think is the field we were in, in a way, the opportunities are not as rich there. For myself, I had been in business for 30-something years and really weathered a lot of storms and had, relative to our, our niche, I think a lot of success and a lot of fun, to be very honest. And I was involved in a very complicated, very painful, very expensive divorce and um, didn't know that I was giving full attention to my business and wasn't really sure that I could continue on and was exploring all the options related to that, although the business continued along, coming right along, going well. And I've also been very fortunate to have excellent, excellent employees, some just outstanding people working with me through the years. But I wanted to make sure I was doing right by them. And it ended up being time to, time to make a change, time to make a decision, and through all that period, you, you need to get your business in shape to sell. And what I ended up doing was I did speak with a business broker and we explored a few options there, but they really weren't the right thing at the right time. And slightly out of the blue, a former customer who had actually, she was still a current customer, actually, customer since she was seven years old, was looking for a career change and decided to buy the business. And once that decision was made on all our parts, it went smoothly. And she took over the business in beginning of 2018 and has put her stamp on it clearly and doing a great job. And it's really exciting to watch her take my child and teach it a lot of neat new tricks. There does come that time when you let it go and you go, you're holding it close. And just like a child, you just you got to either let them walk or kick them out. Yes, I, I like to think I, I like to think that this was a, a peaceful transition, <laughs> and I'm very proud of my child, and I'm also very proud of my longtime friend and customer who took a big risk herself in trying something new that she hadn't done, and has done a beautiful job. And I feel that she has respected what I built and helped make it new again too, and that's the best possible outcome. Well, congratulations on the sale and your new ventures. And I've got to ask, you go by the name of Miss Motivation. Where did that come from? Ah, that's my email address. And that was one of the first horses I owned. 
the first um, <laughs> jumping horse that I ever had. And I liked Step Behind Miss Motivation in terms of trying to be motivated, but it also was the name of a beloved horse. Excellent. Well, I was wondering about that, and it makes perfect sense. Susie Fleetstra has been our guest here on Business Soup. I've known her for decades, and it's always a pleasure competing with her and knowing that she's a friend. And we're out there on, on the same, going in circles all of our lives and sharing the story about her business, Hobby Horse, and it's a fashion company and just a fashion business. And I can't thank you enough, Susie, for joining me on this serving of Business Soup. Ladies and gentlemen, Susie Fleetstra from Hobby Horse. Thank you so much for having me, and I encourage everyone listening, chase your dreams. You just might catch them. This has been another serving of Business Soup, where business comes for business. I'm John Debevoise, inviting you to visit the website for more servings of what is best in business. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.